Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you now, would, would you unleash the power of the scriptures? Just like Lisa said earlier, we know that every word in this book is your word. These are your words to us. True. 100% true, directly from you. And Lord, would you unleash the power of, of your true words by the work of the Holy Spirit to mold us and shape us and encourage us and convict us and comfort us, whatever we need. Would you come and do that today now, I pray. Help me to have wisdom. Help me to be faithful to the truth of your word. Give me the heart I, I need and long for to preach this. And I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, we're in week two of a four-week series in which we're looking at how was it that the early church, the early church's book of Acts, filled their cities with the gospel? How did that happen? And, and here's the reason, you may not know what this is, like what's this picture up here? Well, all these blue dots, those are our present home groups. And our longing is to see home groups multiplied throughout the South Bay area. And then that little red one there, oh, there we go, that little red one right there, that's, that's here, Allen School. And our vision is to see a bunch of those red dots throughout the South Bay area. That's, we want to see this city, I mean, a lot of churches are here and are, are preaching the gospel, and we want to join with them. We want to see this city filled with the gospel. So we're asking the question, how was it that churches in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, filled their cities with the gospel? And what I've seen is, as I look through the New Testament, there's, there's four rhythms that mark the life of, of every church in the New Testament. The first one is faith. That's where it starts, where each believer is trusting Jesus. They're trusting Jesus' promises completely with their whole life. And the result of that is joy and peace comes, and love for others comes, and passionate obedience to Jesus comes from that, that rhythm of faith. And then flowing from that is a rhythm of community where we love each other and we are devoted to building each other up in trusting Jesus. And the result of building each other up in faith is that there's even more joy and peace then and even more love for others and even more passionate obedience to Jesus. So you've got this rhythm of faith, this rhythm of community, and that flows into a rhythm of mission where we're so full of love for the Lord and we're, we're emboldened by him that we long for everyone we know to come to know Jesus. And so we show Jesus to our neighbors and our friends and, and work associates. And we share Jesus with our neighbors and friends and work associates. Everywhere we go, loving Jesus, sharing Jesus. So the rhythm of faith and of community and of mission then flows into multiplication. The result is the New Testament and, and what, what we're praying God will do here is that each of us will have the joy of seeing someone who doesn't know Jesus come to know Jesus, be forgiven for all their sins, be saved, brought into God's family, adopted by God as their father through Jesus. And so every one of us will have children and, and spiritual grandchildren, and every home group will be multiplying, and, and we'll be, be planting churches throughout the South Bay area. That's what we're longing for. And so last week we started with that first rhythm of faith, and this morning we're going to touch the second rhythm of community. Now look at this picture up on the screen, okay? Here's a, this isn't really a trick question, but is this church? Now my answer to that is, maybe. Maybe. 
And, and the reason I answer it that way is because in the New Testament, church is not a service you attend. It's not a meeting you go to. In the New Testament, church is a community of followers of Jesus who love each other, know each other, eat meals together, weep with each other, laugh with each other, pray with and for each other, share Jesus with each other's friends, help each other financially at times. Church is a, is a Christ-centered community. It's a group of people who know and love and care for each other. And so that may be what's going on here, but it may not be. See, because you can go to a church service and not experience church the way the New Testament describes it. And we're passionate here at Mercy Hill about doing all we can as God moves in our hearts to press in to experience the level of community that we see described in the New Testament. Especially we're seeking to do that in our home groups, smaller groups where we can really come to know each other. Now, this isn't easy. This level of community, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It's very demanding. I want to make sure you understand the bar is high on what this is going to mean for us to pursue. But church, it's absolutely essential. For, for you to experience the level of closeness with Jesus, heart-experienced closeness with Jesus that this book says you can have, you have to be in that setting of community. It's essential. For us to see our hearts so full of the Lord and so emboldened that we're sharing Jesus freely and boldly and joyfully and effectively, we need to be part of that kind of a community. For Jesus to be glorified in this city as much as we long for him to be. For the gospel to fill this city, which is what we long to see happen, we have got to be built on that level of community. So that's what I want us to talk about this morning. Now, where does that kind of community come from? It's not something you can like schedule or program. I mean, scheduling things can help that happen, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? I mean, it's got to be something that the Holy Spirit births in our hearts. The kind of love that you hear described in the New Testament is a supernatural love for each other. Where it doesn't make any difference if, if like, we're all you know, like the 49ers the same, or if we all like dress the same, or if we're all in the same socioeconomic stuff. It, it transcends all that, and we just passionately, deeply love each other in costly ways. So the Holy Spirit has to birth this in our hearts. And he will use his word to do this. And so there's a passage that I'm praying the Holy Spirit will use this morning to, to help with this. And it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. I'd like you to turn there. If you need a Bible, thanks, Bible passer outers. If you just raise your hand, I'd like you each to have a Bible so that you can study this passage with us this morning. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 2 is on page 986 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Now here's some background. Thessalonica, you can see it up here on the screen, um, was a thriving harbor city right there. Here's the Aegean Sea. You know, to the right there's Ephesus, Palestine's way down to the bottom right. So there's Thessalonica on the Aegean Sea. About 100,000 people in the city. So it's a thriving harbor commercial uh, city. 
And around AD 48, Paul and Silas went there in order to tell people about Jesus and to see a church planted. And as was Paul's habit, he spent three Saturdays in the Jewish synagogue. Paul was a, a credentialed Pharisee. And so usually what happened is he'd go into a synagogue and they would ask him to be the guest speaker for that morning, which he would gladly do. And so he, he opened up the Old Testament from passages like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 and Genesis 3.15. He showed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. He preached that boldly for three Saturdays. And Jewish men and women experienced God's saving power coming upon them. And they knew Jesus is our Messiah. And they repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. And Gentile uh, listeners in who came and, and, and gathered around and wanted to listen in too, they put their trust in Jesus. And, and in three Saturdays, there was a little, little church started. At the same time, there were some of the Jewish leaders who were infuriated at what Paul was doing. And they stirred up a mob to find Paul and Silas. Purportedly, it seems like, with the intention of at least doing them harm, if not killing them. And so the this young little couple-week-old church said, Paul, you've got to go. So Paul and Silas left town uh, with their lives and escaped. And so now here in 1 Thessalonians 2 chapter, well, the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes them. But in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, we see what was in Paul's hearts towards them. And that's what I want you to see. Look at what Paul felt towards the Thessalonians, verses 17 and 18. Here's what he says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in hearts, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So what was in Paul's heart towards these Thessalonian believers? The phrase I summed it up with was that Paul had an unquenchable longing to, to see them, to fellowship with them, no matter what the cost. Okay, in verse 17, I see this longing to see them. Notice he says, we were torn away from you. Paul just didn't say, you know, we left, but our hearts were like ripped when we had to leave you. Paul loved them, longed to be with them. He was torn away. In person, he was torn away, not in heart. That is, even though physically Paul wasn't there, they were still in his heart. He hadn't forgotten about them. He thought about them. He loved them. He cared for them. End of verse 17, he says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So Paul had this longing, this passionate longing to fellowship with the Thessalonians. And I call it an unquenchable longing because of verse 18. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. So Paul tried to go back to see them. Boom, hit up against this satanic hindrance. Well, okay, Paul's going to try going this way. Boom, another satanic hindrance. Again and again. Satan is hindering me, but I kept trying again and again because Paul had this unquenchable longing to fellowship with the Thessalonians to go back and see them. Now, I also say that it was uh, a longing he had to fellowship with them no matter what the cost. And the reason I say that, you can't see from these two verses, but you can see it in Acts chapter 17, which is where the story of Paul going to Thessalonica is written. When Paul left uh, Thessalonica, 
for his life, okay, right there, he and Silas fled to Berea, right down here, 20 miles to the west, 20-mile journey. The mob in Thessalonica, we get some sense of just how infuriated they were and how intent they were on killing Paul. They were so infuriated that they traveled. When they heard that Paul was in Berea doing the same thing, they traveled the 20 miles from Thessalonica to Berea so they could kill Paul in Berea. And in Berea, Paul just barely left with his life. So picture what Paul is would be anticipating facing when he goes back to Thessalonica. Can you get a little bit of a feel? Like, you just leave a city for your life. People there, there's this mob trying to kill you. You escape 20 miles away. When they hear you're there, the mob, they want to kill you there. You escape there. Now they're back here and, I'm longing to go back. Do you feel that? This is an amazing thing that's happening in Paul's heart. I mean, this, what's in Paul's heart, is a display of Jesus' worth. He was willing to go back no matter what the cost. An unquenchable longing to be with the Thessalonian believers, to fellowship with them. Cost, I don't give a rip about the cost. I've got to see them. I've got to see them. Do you feel that? Okay, now, what's in your heart towards your brothers and sisters? The ones sitting right in front of you or next to you or the, the brothers and sisters that are in your your home group. What I mean, honestly, over this last week, what has been in your heart towards them? How strong has your longing been to see them? I've got to see them. I want to see them. How strong has that longing been? How unquenchable has that longing been? How many hindrances has Satan thrown up that you just kept I'm going to see them no matter what. Or did it just take like a little hindrance and what's on TV? Are they in your heart and mind as you're at work? Not that you don't do your work, but you know, you can, right? You can do both. Um, how persistent have you been in finding ways to connect with them? Now, I read this passage and I've, I've got a ways to go to come near to what Paul's talking about. And I, I'm sure that's probably true for all of us, isn't it? We, we've all got a ways to go here. But see, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why he writes things like this. He wants the Thessalonians to see, oh, this is the kind of love we should be having for each other. And the Holy Spirit had Paul write this so that we 2,000 years later would say, this is the kind of love we should be having for each other. So, why does Paul have this kind of love for each other? And I'm so thankful that in verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us a reason why. Notice the first word in verse 19. It's the word for, which could kind of seem like a boring word, but it's one of the most exciting words in the Bible because the word for shows that a reason is coming for what's just been said. So Paul just said, I have an unquenchable longing to see the Thessalonian believers no matter what the cost, for, because... And he's going to explain why. So I want to know why. Why did Paul feel this way? Look at verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you 
for you are our glory and joy. Why does Paul have this unquenchable longing to see, to fellowship with the Thessalonians no matter what the cost? It's because when Jesus comes back, at the second coming of Jesus, the Thessalonian believers will be Paul's glory and joy. Now, if you've read much of Paul, that should sound a little strange to you. Does that just sound strange to anybody? Because what is Paul's glory and joy all through his life? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is his glory. Jesus is his joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And the second coming is going to be seeing Jesus, his glory, and his, his joy. And that makes sense. That, that's what Paul's going to experience, the second coming. Jesus will be his glory and joy. I mean, think of what it'll mean. I mean, we can't wrap our minds around this, but just try to get some sense of what it's going to mean when, when Jesus Christ comes back. End of history. Second coming of Christ. Personal, visible, global Jesus bringing the end of history to culmination. If you're trusting Jesus, oh, I hope you're trusting Jesus this morning. Are you, just a little side note here. Are you... Remember last week, there's the chair. Remember, trusting Jesus is not just agreeing with facts about Jesus, because you can agree with facts about Jesus and be trusting something else. Are you trusting yourself to Jesus, sitting in the chair, resting your whole life on his promises? Okay, if you're trusting Jesus, then think of what it'll it'll mean when he comes back. You will, for the first time, see him face to face. Jesus. Jesus. God in the flesh, Jesus, creator God, infinite God, all-powerful God, no beginning God, no end God, right before you in the flesh. You're going to see God in the flesh. The one who loved you. Loved you. Gave himself up for you. While you were a rebel, while you would have been one of the crowds shouting, crucify him. If I was been, would have been there, I would have been me, and it would have been you, if you would have been there. While we were his enemies, he took upon himself the suffering that our rebellion against God deserves, and he paid, and he paid, and he paid. So you're going to stand, standing before you is going to be Jesus, God in the flesh, who loved you and gave himself up for you. And at that moment, you see him and the love and the mercy and the goodness and the perfection and the power and the majesty shining forth. You'll see his glory and his glory will be your joy, right? He will be your glory and your joy. But here Paul says that at that moment, the Thessalonians are going to be his glory and his joy. (laughs) What's he talking about? See, here's the picture that's helped me. See if this works for you. Have you had those times, maybe here on Sunday morning or maybe in your home group, when you're worshiping the Lord and your heart's set upon him and you're seeing spiritually him and you're seeing his glory and he's your joy and you're delighting in him and your heart is filled with him and you're loving him and you're worshiping him. So it's all about him. And then... You look over maybe across the room and you see a brother or a sister 
Maybe they've just got their hands lifted and they're worshiping the Lord. Maybe there's, there's tears coming down their faces. They're worshiping the Lord. Maybe you know what they're going through and yet they're worshiping the Lord. And isn't this what happens? I mean, you've been worshiping Jesus and he's your glory and your joy, but then you look over at them and you see more of Jesus in their worship. It's like, yes! And you worship the Lord all the more, right? It's like they become, the light of Jesus' glory is shining upon you and they become like a mirror refracting even more to you. So because you see more of Jesus' glory in them and you have more of Jesus' joy because you're seeing it in them, they are your glory and joy because they're showing you more of Jesus' glory and joy. Have you experienced that? I, I Look around sometime during worship, okay? It's, it's a very powerful thing, especially if that's a brother or a sister you've loved, blessed, served, wept with, you know the trials they're going through and they're displaying Jesus as their treasure, it shows more of Jesus to you. That's what happens at the second coming. If you could illustrate it like this, so, so here, maybe here's me and Jesus comes back and I see him and the light of his, of his glory is shining upon me and I'm filled with joy in his glory. But that's not all that happens at the second coming. In fact, can I have like five of you just run up here really quick, just five of you really quick to... Come up here, just five of you, really quick. Just like stand right around here. So it's not just this. It's, it's that you're surrounded by people. And so the light of Jesus' glory, hurry, you're, you're, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Okay. No, but surround me. Surround me. Circle around me. So the light of Jesus' glory is shining on me. And then hold your mirrors up and, and reflect it from him to me too. More, more light. So I've got Jesus' light shining upon me. And then, whoa, and yes, and yes, you're my glory and joy because you're showing me Jesus' glory and joy. Do you see that? Give them a big hand for their, for their help. So you've maybe never thought about this, but what, what Paul is saying is that he's saying your joy in Jesus, your eternal, never-ending joy in Jesus will be increased by brothers and sisters that are in heaven with you. That's what he's talking about here. His eternal joy in Jesus will be increased because of others that are in heaven with him. Let's, let's get concrete. Your joy in heaven, this is gonna, if you're trusting Jesus, this is going to happen. You're going to be there as sure as you're sitting in that chair. This is your destiny. And the brothers and sisters in your home group will increase as they're there captured by Jesus, your joy in him forever will be increased by their presence around you. The people you're sitting next to here, your joy in Jesus forever will be increased forever because of the brothers and sisters that are there with you. Have you ever thought about that? That's the reason Paul gives for why he has this unquenchable longing to fellowship with them no matter what the cost. Now, I have to admit that, that that didn't connect with me in terms of, I, I like the concept. How is that a reason, though, for why he wanted to go see them now? Um, they're going to be in heaven with Paul whether Paul goes to see them or not, right? Hmm. So here's my next question. To, to make that reason work, so the reason Paul longs to go see them is because his joy in heaven is going to be increased if they're in heaven. The way to make that work, we've got to ask, what does fellowship now with them have to do with them being in heaven in the future? Got to ask that question. What's the connection between fellowship now and them being in heaven? And look at what he says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He answers that question. 
And the answer is kind of shocking. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, did you feel Paul could, he couldn't bear to be apart from them. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So Paul's big concern here is, how's the Thessalonians' faith? That's his, that's what he could not bear any longer. He couldn't bear not knowing how their faith was. He couldn't bear not having either him or Timothy there strengthening their faith. Now why is he so concerned about their faith? Verse 3, that no one be moved that is disturbed, troubled by these afflictions. Imagine you were a Thessalonian believer, just came to know Jesus, presence of the Holy Spirit making Jesus real, you're loving Jesus, and then these two guys who've just been preaching the gospel, they get run out of town, they barely escape for their lives, just right a small, ah! And Paul and Silas are just like taken off. You're thinking, hmm, hmm, I'm still here in town, Paul was preaching about Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to start preaching about Jesus because that's what all followers of Jesus do. The, the crowd's still here. Do you feel the dilemma? Okay? Paul was concerned. So we don't anyone to be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this, for afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. That's one reason Paul was so concerned about their faith is could these afflictions and the danger of persecution have caused them to turn from Christ? And he puts it even more clearly in verse 5, another reason why he's concerned for their faith. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Okay, Paul is deeply concerned about the tempter. That's Satan. Paul was deeply concerned that the tempter was tempting the Thessalonians, using the afflictions that Paul had experienced, the mob that was there, that the tempter was tempting them. That was Paul's concern. And, and I think we need, to, we need to see a real picture of what's happening in, in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So you've got to understand the person you're sitting next to right now, Satan is going to be seeking to tempt them this afternoon and tonight. And the people in your home group, Satan is going to be seeking to tempt them tomorrow while they're at work and on Tuesday. Uh, the person to the, to the left of you, Satan's seeking to tempt them right now. Okay, And you too, and the person on your right as well, everybody. And the reason that's so serious is because of what Paul says in verse 5. If they succumb to temptation, Paul's labor could be in vain. Now that Greek word in vain is, uh, I wrote down the definitions the dictionary said, it means empty, with no result, purposeless. Paul's concern is that Satan is tempting the Thessalonian believers, and if they succumb to the temptation, Paul's labor would be empty, with no result, and purposeless. Which can't mean that Paul's concern is that they're going to be in heaven with fewer rewards. That's not empty with no result or purposeless. What this has to mean 
And other scriptures bear this out, is that Paul's concern is that they wouldn't be in heaven at all. That's Paul's concern here. Now, if that's a new thought for some of you, which it may, it may be, uh, depending on what your background is, I jotted down two scriptures in your notes there just to, to look at on your own. Uh, Colossians 1, and 23, James 5, 19 and 20. You can also look, I, I didn't jot down, I forgot to, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, Mark 9, 47 and 48. There's lots of passages that warn believers about the possibility of not going to heaven if we don't persevere in the faith. And I want us to see each other this way. I want you to think about the people in your home group this way. Your wife, your husband, your kids this way. Satan is going to be tempting them. And if they succumb to temptation, there's the possibility that they wouldn't be in heaven at all. Can I, probably before you can really embrace that emotionally, I've got to raise a theological question here. If you've read the Bible carefully, then you're, you're going to be wondering, how can Paul say that when, like in Romans 8, 28-30, he says that everyone whom God saves will be in heaven. Paul says that. Everyone whom God saves will be in heaven. St. Paul said that also. St. Paul said, Philippians 1.6, the good work God began in you, God will continue it, continue it, continue it until the day of Christ Jesus, second coming. You'll be there. Okay? So, here's what that means. If God has saved that person sitting next to you, the person in your home group, then God is going to keep that person's faith strong until the end. If that person ends up turning away finally from the faith, my, my theology is, my doctrine is that he, they were never saved in the first place. Okay, That's why we, we, we keep building each other up and keep encouraging each other. I don't think anybody can lose their salvation. But we are warned, and one of the ways God keeps us strong in the faith is by these warnings, that if you turn away finally, then it's all over. Whoa! I'm going to keep on! And God's just kept us keeping on through those warnings. And if you've been saved, he will keep you keeping on through those warnings and through other means as well. If you want to raise some questions about that, if we have time for questions at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can try to answer them. Paul's convinced from Romans 8, Philippians 1, that everyone whom God saves, God keeps their faith strong until the end. But now here's the question. How does God keep their faith strong? I just talked about warnings, but, but a whole other way that God keeps faith strong is through our fellowship with each other. One of the ways, one of the main ways God will keep your brother, your sister in the faith strong is through your encouragement of them. Eternity is at stake, that means, in our fellowship with each other. This raises the bar for fellowship really high. Look at a scripture. Look at Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. If this is a new thought for you, I, I imagine maybe you're, you're, you're reeling a little bit, and I'm really sympathetic with that because when I first saw some of these scriptures and pondered them, it was a new thought for me too, and it wasn't easy to adjust. But look at Hebrews three twelve through 14 and see if, if this doesn't help you see another passage that teaches the same thing. A friend of mine says, uh, eternal, we believe in eternal security, absolutely, and eternal security in the Bible is a community effort. It's a community effort. And we see that in these verses. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, 
Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So we should be caring for each other. Like Paul was caring for the Thessalonians. I couldn't bear it any longer. How are they doing? That's verse 12 right there. Verse 13. But exhort another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, why? Verse 14. For because we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Your brothers and sisters have come to share in Christ, been saved, if they hold their original confidence firm until the end. And because of that, therefore, exhort them every day. See how that logic works? Because they become partakers of Christ if they hold on to the end. Therefore, exhort them every day. Every day. Loving them. Listening to them. Praying with them. Encouraging them. How's it going? Comforting them. Building them. So see, fellowship isn't just because you like having friends. Fellowship is because you like having your friends in heaven. Bars raised way high. It's not just we like hanging out together. We do. But eternity is at stake in what's going on here. That's why Paul had an unquenchable longing to go back and see them no matter what the cost. I might get killed, Small cost if it protects their eternity. Silas, let's go. Forward it again. Make new reservations tomorrow. Go the back way. Well, we'll find a way to get there, okay? So let me put it, kind of restate what Paul's saying in 1 Thessalonians. Back to 1 Thessalonians 2. His joy in Jesus will be multiplied forever by having his brothers and sisters there in heaven. And Paul understands that fellowship with them could be the crucial factor to have them persevere in faith to the end so they enter heaven. And so therefore, he has an unquenchable longing to fellowship with them no matter what the cost. Do you see the flow of thought? It's devastating and exciting. The Christian life and your life and your phone call and your hanging with somebody at Starbucks, these things are massively important. We don't see. The angels are watching. War is being waged. Eternity is at stake. And you're a key player in this thing. And eternity is in the balance. All fellowship is important. Don't make light of it. One of the ways Satan hinders it is by watering it down so it's like it's not that big of a deal. Paul had an unquenchable longing to fellowship with them no matter what the cost because he knew that it could make the difference in their eternity. He would fellowship at the cost of his life and if he died, he'd say it was a sweet deal. Smart man. Yes. Well done. Mm. That's how fellowship works. Now, what does this mean for us? I, I just laid out four kind of implications and then see if we have some questions. Understand how crucial fellowship is. In the mystery of how God works, from your 
vantage point, your fellowship could make the difference in your brothers persevering in the faith to the end. Makes your fellowship really, really important. You're talking to them at Starbucks. You're confronting them about an issue. You're praying with them. You're weeping with them. Understand how crucial fellowship is. Second, focus your fellowship on faith in Jesus. That was Paul's whole concern here in Thessalonians. He wanted to find out about their faith. He sent Timothy to strengthen them in their faith. That should be our main concern. Are they resting their entire life on the chair of Jesus' promises? Or are they starting to rest their life back on something else? And we do that all the time. It's a fight of faith. So our main concern should be faith. And there's a place for playing Settlers of Catan or watching the 49ers this afternoon. There's a place for that as long as our main thing is how's our faith. So ask each other humbly, graciously, what's the Lord doing in your heart? How's your trust in Jesus? What's the Holy Spirit stirring in you? What burdens are you bearing? And then listen and listen and listen and love and love and love and encourage and comfort and build. Third, consider what lesser priorities need to be dropped. New Testament church life means lots of face-to-face time with each other. Face-to-face. That's all Paul wanted face-to-face time with them. In each other's homes, we're eating together, we're talking together, we're listening to each other, we're laughing together, we're, we're sharing our lives together. Lots and lots of face-to-face time. That's New Testament church life. And that means lots of time. And see, we're all busy. We've got lots of responsibilities. All of us have more to do than we can do. Right? And this is going to take a whole lot more time than, than I'm given to it, than we're given to it. So here's my challenge to you. If this is what Jesus said church life is, which I'm, I'm persuaded it is, ask him, is there something that needs to go from my life, from priority? I've got my family. You've called me to provide for my family. I've got my kids, other things I'm, that, that I'm called to do. Is there some priority that you're, you're telling me to let go so that I have more time to give to my brothers and sisters? I challenge you to lay that before Jesus and see what he says to you. He's got a plan for how this is going to work out for you. Because he said, this is your plan. And he'll help you work it out. Fourth, Anticipate and resist Satan's hindrances and pursue fellowship with others. Satan's going to hinder your fellowship. Do you see why? If your fellowship could keep your brother pursuing in the faith, Satan doesn't have unlimited resources. He's going to go for the most important things. He'll try to keep you from that fellowship so that your brother may not continue in the faith. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So he'll, he'll try to hinder that. And so understand, Satan's going to try to hinder your fellowship. So even if your phone call could make the difference in your brother being able to endure a trial, Satan will make you think, uh, he doesn't want to get a phone call from you. You're too busy, right? It'll be awkward. And so you don't. Anybody ever had that come across your mind besides me? Okay. Maybe you're meeting, at a, meeting a sister at Starbucks could be used to, to, to bear her burden so she's able to press in through a very difficult trial and keep trusting Jesus through a very painful time. And the hindrance will be like, you know, I'm tired. I mean, uh, you know, what's on TV tonight? I mean, maybe we'll, we'll do it some other time. Satan will try to hinder you from that fellowship. It might be um, like a spiritual gift that you receive at your home group this week that just builds a brother to resist a temptation. And so Satan's going to try to hinder you from being at a home group this week. He'll try to hinder you from that. 
Okay? Or maybe, maybe next Sunday, a conversation you have with somebody after being here will, will help them see a blind spot in their life. So they say, oh, what was I doing? And God will use just a simple conversation to shed light on something, and they'll be totally helped and strengthened in the faith. So Satan will try to hinder you by having something else come up for next Sunday morning. So he's trying to hinder our fellowship. We've got to see that. That's what's going on. Why am I always so tired before home group? All of a sudden. Isn't it the weirdest thing? It's like, man, I'm tired. I, I'm really, it's Wednesday night. It's this weird Wednesday afternoon thing that comes upon me. Anticipate the hindrances and resist them and pursue fellowship no matter what the cost. So here's my challenge, church. Your eternal joy in Jesus will be increased forever by having brothers and sisters there around you. And your fellowship with them can be used by God to bring them there. So, have an unquenchable longing to fellowship with them, no matter what the cost. Now, what questions does this raise? We want to, I mean, check our hearts. We want to, we're, we're sinners. We're saved by grace. We're not better than anybody else. And um, we need to love people, and we, they need to hear the gospel. And you were saying that. No one gets saved without hearing the gospel. Um, my thought is if I'm humble and authentic and love the person, then it's hard to go wrong. Lots of things I won't be able to answer, lots of questions I won't be able to address necessarily, but if, I, if, if they know I love them, um, it's hard to go wrong. And so, yeah. Good. Well, let's, let's pray together. And ask the Lord to burn this into our hearts more deeply. In fact, let, let's stand. I just want to ask God to... Love for others has got to be birthed by the Spirit. He can take truth like this and just cause love for others to sprout. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, this is, this is powerful stuff you've given to us. Thank you for this passage, Holy Spirit, that you led Paul to write. And give us deeper understanding. Help us to wrap our minds around these, maybe, maybe some new thoughts And would you give us more of what Paul had, an unquenchable longing to fellowship with each other no matter what the cost, and that that would change us right now. Maybe hanging out a little longer and talking. Change us this afternoon or tonight. It would change us this week. So Lord, for the glory of your name, for the, the eternity of our brothers and sisters, Put more of this love in our hearts, I pray, in my heart and in each of our hearts. Help us grow in this, Lord. Teach us through your word by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.